1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular, Sean.
2: And I'm the very titular, Carrie.
1: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. You know what this week is.
2: More axe murders? Yep,
1: we are in uh, week two of three weeks of promised axe murders here on Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. And this week, Caroline, we are going to cover... Sort of the mother of all American axe murder stories. Um, the most famous one. Lizzie Borden? No, no, not that one. I, that's a good point, actually. I, I, all right. This is the silver medal. Let's give it that.
2: Listen, not every axe murder has a song to go along
1: with it. And I haven't heard of any. Of well, to list- be fair,
2: last week's did, though.
1: That, yeah, it sure <laughs> did. The uh, mysterious Axeman's Jazz don't Hurt Me, Papa.
2: Don't Hurt Me, Papa.
1: And you can go return to the beginning of our uh, axe murder series uh, to get information on the New Orleans Axe Man. Sort of a loose series. I mean, if you didn't hear that episode, you're going to be just fine here. We're talking about a totally different incident mm-hmm. um, halfway across the country. The Vallisca axe murders happened over the night of June 9th to 10th, uh, 1912 in Vallisca, Iowa. Uh, I know. I was going to ask if you've heard of Velisca, Iowa, but I know you've heard of these crimes. So
2: Yes, I have heard of this situation.
1: Have you ever heard of anything else happening in Velisca?
2: I know that there is a Velisca axe murder house that is still up and running.
1: Yeah, that's pretty related to this thing we're talking about here.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's really it.
1: Um, that could be, and probably is, because Velisca is a very small town. Um, population of about 2,000 at the time of the murders. Uh, in fact, at that time, the mayor of Villisca was also the local dentist. Mm. It was that kind of a town.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Villisca's population today, by the way, is actually smaller. In the 2020 census, they counted 1,132 residents.
2: That's very interesting.
1: Um, yeah, some of these Midwestern towns do shrink because people moved to the city.
2: Was it like a farming town? Back in the day
1: uh, I think if you're that far out in <laughs> that far out in Iowa, everything's pretty much a farming town mm. uh, certainly farming formed the basis for a lot of the local economy, and uh Josiah J. B. Moore, who was forty three at the time of the murders, had done pretty well for himself owning a local franchise of a John Deere store
2: Oh back in the day yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, tractors couldn't have been. Tractors must have been a pretty new thing Mm -hmm. Uh, at the time. I I wouldn't have known John Deere was around in 1912. Uh, The automobile was still a a pretty new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Moore was described as uh, at peace with everybody later by the Iowa Attorney General. He was married to Sarah Moore, 39 years old at the time of the murders, and they had four children, Herman Montgomery Moore, Mary Catherine Moore, Arthur Boyd Moore, and Paul Vernon Moore, ages 11, 10, 7, and 5, respectively. Full house. Yeah. Uh, The Moors were dedicated Presbyterians, and on June 9th, they attended a Children's Day service at their Presbyterian church. The Moore parents and all of their children participated in the festivities, um, which I you know, I, I haven't seen any specific references, but I imagine a pageant and some singing and uh, things like that, which Sarah actually helped organize for the day.
2: Was that like a local holiday, Children's Day?
1: Well, I think just a church, you know, th- this is the the children's uh, uh, services at the church. <laughs> okay. Eight-year-old Ina and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger uh, were friends of Mary Catherine Moore, who were playing at the Moore House all afternoon.
2: Is Is that I-N-A?
1: Yes, uh, I-N-A. might be Ina. Ina? Yeah. I guess I was just going for a, a, a rhyming naming <laughs> convention. Okay, so Ina and Lena Stillinger mm-hmm. uh, had been playing with Mary Catherine all afternoon. And uh, before the services began, Joe, uh, his full name Josiah, by the way, Josiah, and he often went by J.B. Uh, more. he called the Stillinger house to ask if it was okay if the girls spent the night. And uh, the parents weren't home at the time, but an older sister gave the okay for Ina and Lena to uh, uh, spend the night at the Moore house.
0: Hmm.
1: That older sister couldn't have predicted the consequences of giving that permission um, in a million years, but I'm Certainly sure. not. But I'm sure it uh, haunted her afterward. Hmm. The Children's Day service ended around 9 p.m., and the Moores went home with the Stillinger girls. On the morning of June 10th, 1912, no one was stirring on the Moore home. And normally, by pretty early, just after sunup, somebody would have been out doing chores. Um, Joe would have been uh, feeding the chickens. Around 7 a.m., a neighbor noticed nobody was moving around and the chickens were squawking in their coop.
2: Kind of reminding me of Hinterkaifeck. Uh,
1: In many respects, this story will remind you of Hinterkaifeck. Hmm. The neighbor found the door to the house locked. And so she went and let the chickens out of their coop and uh, then called Joe's brother, Ross Moore, who immediately called the John Deere store that Joe owned. Um, And the clerk who was on duty left the store, you know, locked up, went over to the Moore's house and banged on the door, but found the house locked up tight.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, by 8 a.m., so we're about an hour after the neighbor first showed up, Ross was concerned enough to go over himself. And after checking on the family's livestock, he circled the house, banging on windows and doors, uh, and, of course, not raising any answer. After the neighbor had returned, Ross either unlocked or forced open the front door. Um, it's a little unclear. Mm-hmm. Which one? To find a foul odor and terrible stillness inside the house.
2: hmm Never want to walk into that.
1: No. Um, It seems like just inside of the front door, on the first floor, was a parlor, like a living room. And there was a small room that was used as a bedroom off of the parlor. It sounds like Mary Catherine would normally sleep there. But on this particular night, she had been upstairs with her brothers, while the Stillinger girls shared the parlor bedroom. As Ross Moore entered that parlor bedroom, he saw blood everywhere,
0: Mm.
1: and the two young Stillinger girls obviously bludgeoned to death, likely with the rusty axe that was discarded on the floor next to them.
2: Were they cut, or was it just blunt force trauma?
1: Blunt force. Someone had used the blunt side of the axe to smash the heads of all of the family members.
2: Oh, God. So so no sharp... And was used. I don't,
1: I don't think so. I think this family was all bludgeoned. <sighs> Ross staggered to the front porch to sit down, and he said aloud to the neighbor, something terrible has happened.
2: So he only saw that
1: first bit, and that was enough. It was time to call the police, obviously. Yeah. Now, the Velisca Police Force, and this is very common for a town of this size at this time, consisted of a city marshal named Hank Horton and a couple like two to three uh, night watchmen. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, None of those men have any police training whatsoever. They're just guys who were given this job.
2: Kind of like um, a volunteer fire brigade?
1: Very much so, except you're the only ones responsible for catching criminals. Now, there was a county sheriff's department um, that was supposed to help them out with larger investigations, uh, but the seat of the county was 18 miles away in red oak. So for the moment, Hank Horton was on his own. He rushed to the scene, and this is a pretty, a pretty brave guy. You have to give this guy credit. Um, he doesn't know that what's inside this house. He doesn't know that there's not still a murderer there, right? Mm-hmm. And as mentioned, no police training whatsoever. Uh, Horton crept from room to room, lighting the way ahead of him with lit matches held in front of his face, and armed only with a nightstick because he did not have a gun as part of this job.
2: What is this? The Conjuring? <laughs>
1: Um, Horton would find all eight victims dead
0: mm.
1: all hit repeatedly with the blunt side of an axe um, now the newspaper accounts basically all emphasize how much and how many times um, they never give specific numbers but they say they were hit repeatedly with an with an axe um, uh, we should acknowledge our main source for this episode and next week's episode apart from Many newspaper clippings that are available online and uh, the, I'll get to this later, but tourism website for the Velisca Axe Murder House. (laughs) Um, Our main source of sober and um, clear-headed facts for this case is uh, the book The Man from the Train by Bill James. Um, Bill James we'll talk about more next week. He is a uh, very famous baseball writer and basically the inventor of sabermetrics like the statistical focused approach to thinking and talking about baseball and the business of baseball. Um, Was he
2: portrayed in Moneyball?
1: I haven't seen the movie Moneyball. No, it appears Jonah Hill played Peter Brand.
2: Oh, because I mean, maybe maybe it's based on him. Jonah Hill's character is like the one who's all, I got this crazy thing you could do.
1: Oh, I gotcha. We we should. uh, I bet you're. Dad's a good source of information on this.
2: I'm sure my dad knows all about it.
1: Anyway, Bill James is one of Time's like 100 most influential people uh, based on his impact on baseball writing and business. Mm -hmm. So this was his foray into true crime writing uh, back in 2017. And it has a really good perspective on this murder and then expands uh, out from there, which we, we will get into later in this podcast, certainly. For now, I only mention him because he points out that while well, all the newspapers say that these people were hit many times with an axe, mm-hmm. um, they probably also weren't, both this police force and the, these reporters probably weren't super familiar with the effects of one blow from the back of an axe on a human head. Mm-hmm. And so it is, uh, it's is—it's possible that it was fewer swings of the axe than than they thought. In any case, the heads were... The the heads and skulls of these victims were badly damaged by this axe, is the point. Mm -hmm. Joe Moore, they said, had been hit many times in particular. Um, Sarah Moore was thought to have been hit at least once with the sharp side of the axe. These are the parents? There is one, yes. Okay. There was a kerosene lamp sitting on the floor of the Moore's room. And a second kerosene lamp on the floor in the parlor bedroom where the Stillinger girls were. Um, both lamps were missing their chimneys. Okay. That's lamps, not lanterns. Like these weren't, they didn't have a handle on top. They weren't meant to be carried around. They were meant to be like put on a table.
2: Kind of those antique uh, glass lamps that you'll find. They have a little wick in them. Yep. A little kind of bulbous bottom. And then they have the, the glass on the top. That's... I have several of these. Not everyone <laughs> will have these. Uh, yeah, um, but with a re- very cool looking
1: a removable glass yeah. uh, shade or chimney at the top. Yeah. The chimneys in bo- both lamps were missing. They were left on the floor in those two rooms. Were they lit? I'm not totally sure if these were still burning. Yes, I believe they were. Okay. There were marks left on the low ceilings in both of the upstairs bedrooms uh, that investigators figured must have been from the back swings of the axe. Now, mm-hmm. since the ceilings in both of those bedrooms were pretty low. Um, they also took that to mean this This had to be probably a pretty small person swinging the axe because he actually managed to get an axe up over his head to swing it down, Um, you know, in this small room.
2: Interesting. We don't know how tall the ceilings were. I know back in the day, everything was made a little shorter.
1: I just know and everything. because it was noted that they were short, right, they must be smaller than eight feet. Okay, that really narrows it down. Well, not when we're talking about somebody swinging both their hands over their head with an axe Mm -hmm. and just grazing the ceiling. That's a short guy. I could do that. (laughs) You might be able to do that. (laughs) The axe had apparently been taken from the family's coal shed and, as I said, was left behind in the parlor bedroom when the killer left. There were multiple mirrors around the house that had been covered with cloth Mm. or with spare pieces of clothing, and every window that wasn't already covered by curtains was also covered over with uh, either a piece of cloth or some clothing that the person had found.
2: There is a um, a superstition. Um, maybe it was more religious back in the day. I think, I think when um, you sit Shiva, you in the Jewish faith, you cover mirrors uh, with cloth or something like that. Um, but it has to do with the the soul not getting trapped in the mirror and it has to do with like a recently deceased person. I see. Um, Now, I don't know if... I I Listen, I could be completely wrong. I'm pretty sure it has to do with Shiva. I don't know if very observant Jewish people cover mirrors like on the Sabbath, but that could be something that has to do with Observing religion on the weekends of like on a Sabbath day, not just Jewish, but maybe Presbyterian. I don't know. Or uh, this killer could have done that.
1: (laughs) Uh, We have... I, I think the assumption is probably the killer did. Oh,
2: yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: this is what the scene was found like when, when they arrived. And the Moors certainly weren't Jewish, so they wouldn't have been observing Oh,
2: it. no, I, I wasn't. I'm just saying it is it is known to be a religious thing. So that is a small possibility, but it's probably, I think, in Red Dragon, the killer covers or breaks mirrors. And psychological we, thing.
1: If you remember Hinterkaifeck, I think in that instance, it was just the one, like, maid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There was like a mentally handicapped maid who the killer had killed with an axe. And uh, I I think he covered her body as well. Mm. As Hank Horton went outside after surveying the scene, he said to Ross Moore, My God, Ross, there's somebody murdered in every bed. Mm. Curiously, every outside door to the house had been either locked or wedged shut and there was a wash basin of bloody water sitting on the kitchen table, as if the killer had washed his hands before he left. Hmm. Finally, and most interestingly to me, uh, a slab of bacon, apparently taken from the icebox, it matched a slab of bacon still in the icebox, was left on the floor of the parlor bedroom. Um, Now, newspaper accounts don't tell you this because um, they had... different standards of decency for what you could print in a paper back then. Mm. Um, But at least Bill James strongly implies that this piece of bacon was used as a masturbatory aid.
2: The fuck? Okay.
1: And that the killer had probably masturbated over the bodies of the Stillinger girls, uh, which is another detail that wouldn't have been put in a paper.
2: Was there DNA at the scene?
1: Well, there was no DNA period at the time
2: no we all had you know what i mean
1: of course yes there Well, that's what i mean the papers wouldn't have mentioned that material but on bill the scene. james
2: is concluding that because there was because of because bodily of, fluids
1: because of things because of um euphemistic things that investigators said about the person's motives okay Ooh, okay Lena Stillinger in many ways may have, appears to have been a focus of this crime. Hmm. Um, we, when the coroner showed up, he found that A, the victims uh, had all died shortly after midnight, and that all of them had been killed in their sleep, except for possibly Lena Stillinger. Dr. F.S. Williams, uh, one of the doctors who was on the inquest, said that Stillinger, quote, Lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over, but just a little. Apparently, she had been struck in the head and squirmed down the bed, perhaps one third of the way. Lena's nightgown had been pushed up and her underwear was missing. Mm. And the coroner told a private investigator named C.W. Toby, although this never made it into the papers, that Lena had been sexually molested after her death. Um, the underwear was found in the room, with blood stains on it. Um, there was also lint on the axe handle, and together uh, those things suggested to investigators that her underwear had been used to wipe the blood from the killer's hands and the axe handle.
2: Okay, well,
1: uh, all the horrible. All the victims, by the way, also covered with blankets. Lena Stillinger's arm was protruding from under the blanket, but she was covered. Um, Now, before they could get that coroner's report, by the way, that involved Horton walking over to the town doctor's office, because there's only one doctor in town, mm -hmm. uh, going through the crowd gathering outside the Moore home by 9 (laughs) a.m. At this point, Horton, who was trying, it sounds like, to secure a crime scene, um, ordered all unauthorized persons out of and away from the home. But he would later estimate that at least 20 people were through the house before the National Guard arrived at noon. Um, other reports have said that it was more like 50 or 100 people who moved through the house during that time.
2: It's uh, it's interesting, the focus on Lena, just because they weren't supposed to be there that night, and yet the whole family was killed. Yeah. So you have to wonder what the motive was, which I'm sure we'll get into. But
1: in the barn, Horton found a depression in a pile of hay that looked like it may have held a body, like someone may have lay there the night before. And laying down in that depression, there was a knot hole directly in front of you in the wall that let you watch the Moore's house.
2: Oh. This is really reminding me of Hinterkaifeck.
1: And so it has been suggested that it's likely the murder lay there quietly, waiting for the house to darken uh, before he did his deed. In which case, he would have seen the girls playing with the Stillingers Mm -hmm. uh, during the day and returning to the house together that night. Uh, It's also been raised as a theory that the murder entered during the church services and hid in a closet somewhere in the house. Um, Our friend Bill James finds that pretty unconvincing. Um, And I don't know, I just like having an explanation for this depression of of, hay. It's it's so creepy. I
2: think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're hiding in the house, wherever it is, and these houses were a lot smaller back in the day, um, you're taking a big risk that someone's going to find you while everyone's still awake.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, the National Guard did arrive at noon, but the bloodhounds that Hank Horton had asked for from the county wouldn't show up until 9 p.m. that night.
2: They were sleeping.
1: They were sweet. (laughs) And when those sweet little boys uh, were finally brought to the crime scene, they immediately picked up a scent and headed down the block. They stopped briefly at the home of a neighbor named Frank Jones, more on Frank in a moment, and then headed directly out into the country, uh, ultimately losing the scent around the Nottaway River. Um, Since they are dogs, we can't be sure what they were scenting on, but something from the crime scene led them there. Hundreds of people, we're told over 300 people, followed this dog search.
2: Not much else to do, I guess.
1: Um, Because, in fact, Velisca's population would swell to multiple times its normal size over the next few weeks with reporters, looky-loos, and, from what I understand, from what Bill James says, dozens of private investigators and different private investigating firms
2: just working on spec were they hired by anyone
1: they were often working on spec and uh, (laughs) i'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get into this investigation because it will largely be done by these private investigators and i'll tell you why and how after the break oh boy hello hello
3: welcome to salem the podcast we are your hosts and favorite salem tour guides i am sarah black
1: and i'm jeffrey Lilly. and today we're going to be talking about nothing this is just a trailer
3: but thanks for tuning in so what is salem the podcast might you ask
1: it's awesome and it's a podcast about all things salem uh not just the witches though We've got a lot of other stuff but why a podcast
3: You could say we have a unique perspective. We are both tour guides here in Salem. We live here, work here. We kind of do everything here.
1: (laughs) We definitely have a front row seat to the city and everything that happens in it. Uh, We'll be talking about the history, murders, pirates, pepper, oh my. But not just that. We'll talk about the Indigenous Peoples, Salem's founding, Great Fire of 1914.
3: And there will be some witches. This is Salem after all. There's no question that those trials of 1692 put us on the map. From spectral evidence and witches' marks to theories and the aftermath, we'll be taking some deep dives into those concepts as well.
1: We want to bring all the things that we love. That you love. About Salem to you. Uh, every week.
3: Yeah, every week. Tuesday tuesday sounds good and if you'd like more information head on over to our website or shoot us an email hello at salemthepodcast.com
0: we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not, but she did. And in the
1: end... What will I become?
2: Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2.
1: Play it now with Game Pass. <laughs> Welcome back. When last we left you, we had given you the facts of the case in the Vallisca axe murder, in which eight people, the entire Moore family, plus the two young girls... Ina and Lena Stillinger were murdered in their beds with the blunt side of an axe. As I said, there had been a bloodhound search that had led off into the country.
2: A bloodhound gang, if you will.
1: A bloodhound gang, if you will. And now it was time for, again, what sounds like hundreds, if not thousands, of private investigators to descend on Vallisca, Iowa. Uh, The way police investigations worked at this time in small towns was i mean like i said the police force was a guy and then a couple of part-time guys mm-hmm. so if you had a real serious crime um it was just pretty widely understood something like a murder it's pretty widely understood that a local police force couldn't investigate it themselves and w- they would almost always resort to private investigator agencies um, like the pinker like the Pinkertons
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like the Burns Detective Agency, who it seems like were just about the second largest detective agency in the country at this time, and who were the primary investigators in the Velisca case. Uh, you mentioned working on spec before, Kerry. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: the funny thing is, so who would pay who would pay these guys, right? Who would pay the the investigators if uh, these towns didn't have the money to investigate for themselves?
2: Well, that's the question. Maybe the family?
1: You would put together a reward fund from the family of the victim's money, um, along with donations from, you know, community-minded folks, along with a little money from the county, and maybe, if you had to, a little money from the state as well. And you'd put that together to either hire on an agency, um, you know, like giving them a wage to do the job, uh, or as was often the case, just offering a reward, and then these agencies would come and investigate the crime on spec,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: looking to get reward money for solving it.
2: That's one way to do it, I guess.
1: It's a really bad way to do it, (laughs) because it encourages you know, like many other aspects of our justice system, it encourages...
2: Falsification.
1: It encourages, yeah, just getting whatever arrest you can because you're not getting paid for for the, for the time you spent unless somebody's in handcuffs. Mm-hmm. And that will lead us into the investigation uh, into Frank F. Jones, that neighbor we mentioned who the uh, bloodhound had stopped at his house.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Frank was, at the time, running for Iowa state senator. In a bid he would win, by the way. He was the richest man in Villisca by far and was the owner of a hardware and farm store in town. Ah, I hear you say. Possible competitor to Joe Moore? He was, in fact. And um, not only a competitor, but a former employer. Joe had left Frank's business to start his uh, John Deere store. Oh. I don't know if they were rivals per se. Jones also owned a local bank and had recently opened a car dealership which was a newfangled thing at the time.
2: Did Jones ever say anything about more leaving the business and starting a competitor?
1: No, we don't have any evidence that there was bad blood between the two. Okay. Um, however, we do have some rumors uh, that a enterprising Burns detective was able to turn up regarding Frank's son, Albert. Uh, he was apparently married to a hot young thing named Donna or Dona, D-O-N-A. And um, this Burns detective was able to find some folks who would testify to the idea that uh, Dona might have had some kind of a thing with Josiah. It sounds like Dona had a thing with a lot of people. Um,
2: Joe, the the patriarch of the Moore family.
1: Yes. Oh. And so oh. possible motive there. Uh, there's no hard evidence behind this other than the, the rumors uh, that, again, only seemed to come up when a detective working on spec was actively looking for them.
2: And it doesn't really explain killing everyone else, including the people who aren't related. And he would know that the Stillinger kids are not related. So even if you're trying to get revenge on the family, why kill these other kids? And then sexually assault one? It doesn't make sense
1: doesn't. And while the Bloodhounds had sent it at Frank's house briefly, um, he wasn't really considered as a serious suspect until the winter of 1912 into 1913. Now, the Burns Detective Agency had originally been hired to investigate the case, but by the winter had basically stopped doing it. They'd stopped being paid, and um, they'd stopped chasing down leads. So, in late 1912, The victims' families, uh, the town, and the county put some more money together to get the investigators back on. This is how it works, right? We have a new reward fund. And um, Burns, who apparently had had a pretty good and thorough investigator on it before, now put a new man on the job, uh, a James N. Wilkerson, who sounds uh, like the best example of why it was a bad system. This private investigator system. Oh dear. Wilkerson promptly decided the best way to a payday for him was getting a conviction on Frank Jones, or at least an arrest. Because that was the only name he had. It was the only name he had. Decides this is obviously the guy. And he got a reporter who was in town covering the story to help him blackmail Frank Jones. He didn't go back and report to his agency. He instead arranged a secret meeting with Frank Jones and said, we're going to publish these. Uh, we, we have crushing details that tie you to this crime and we're going to publish if you don't pay me. Wow. Uh, Jones refused on two separate occasions, knowing he was innocent, presumably. And Wilkerson that would then spend years putting together a case on Frank Jones. Like, this is all Wilkerson dedicated his time <laughs> to uh, for at least the next three years. In 1914, keeping in mind this is like fully a year after he's come onto the case, finally a stroke of luck for Wilkerson. Not a stroke of luck for anyone else, though. (laughs) On July 5th, 1914, a woman and her infant child and parents were all bludgeoned to death with an (laughs) axe. And so Wilkerson's like, yay! Well, this was not too far away, and police suspected the woman's husband, William Mansfield, in the crime. Uh, Mansfield had recently gotten his wife pregnant around the same time as he got another woman pregnant and and then he bailed Uh, and this was his wife and her family who were murdered so he was uh, in the frame pretty quick on that one now Wilkerson hoped to frame Mansfield as a wandering serial murderer he claimed he had ironclad proof that would prove This uh, same William Mansfield was in Paola, Kansas four nights before the Villisca murders when Ronald Hudson and his wife were killed with an axe and also claims he can connect him to several women who had been bludgeoned to death in Aurora, Illinois over the past year. This had happened like three times in a year in Aurora, just women bludgeoned to death with the blunt side of an axe on the street. What? Yeah. Okay. And the Paola, Kansas one... Uh, Let's just say we'll get back to it next week. Hmm. Uh, Finally, Wilkerson put all the pieces together and decided, then claimed, that Frank Jones had hired William Blackie Mansfield to kill Joe Moore. Um, Wilkerson invented this, aka for William Mansfield. He said (laughs) he went by Blackie in criminal circles. And that was likely not true, but we do know that Wilkerson published crime novels under the pen name Blackie something. Oh, jeez.
2: Was there any established uh, connection between these two people? Frank and... And uh, William?
1: Oh, uh, no. Okay. No, it was supposed that uh, his son, the same one who had married that Dona woman, the scandalous Dona, uh, had been a go-between. This was just something that wilkerson seems to have gotten to there's no there's literally zero evidence that the the two men are connected hmm. and that is why the county attorney refused flatly to indict frank jones despite currently being involved in a primary contest to take jones's senate seat well so you'd think if anybody wanted to get this guy in jail it would be that guy
2: at least he has some scruples
1: Jones ultimately would lose the primary to that county attorney um, partly because of mailed circulars that somebody sent out there probably James Wilkerson that uh, you know basically had his face and said you know uh, J- Jones killed the Velisca family
2: do you want an axe murderer
1: yeah exactly is this the face you want and it's just a, an axe <laughs> now because that county attorney was now a state senator in uh, Jones's old seat, there was a new county attorney who was apparently a weak, weaselly guy who this James Wil- <laughs> James Wilkerson pretty quickly convinced to charge William Mansfield with the Villisca murders. Mansfield would later say in a lawsuit he filed against the Burns agency that a bunch of Burns detectives uh, picked him up, loosened several teeth with punches, oh, no. held an axe over his head, and even threatened to hurl him from a moving car off a bridge when trying to get a confession out of him.
2: I mean, they're not working for law enforcement, so I guess they could just kind of do whatever they want?
1: But he was a petty criminal and a tough guy, and Mansfield did not give any kind of confession. He was ultimately released a few weeks later, after it was found there was literally no evidence tying him to the Velisca crime. Wilkerson would later try to burgle Frank's store, his farm store, for evidence... Quote, unquote. How's
2: he uh, getting away with all of this?
1: Well, this he actually would be charged with burglary, but he gets away with it by claiming that it was part of his investigation.
2: Uh, but he has no authority.
1: Um, well, right. But it was well understood that private investigators had to be given some, you know, sometimes you would have to go get a county sheriff to come with you to do something. So you had legal authority. But a lot of the time it was just understood that they, listen, we got to do some stuff. Because otherwise these crimes aren't getting solved. What happened with the burglary was Frank Jones had a rat in Wilkerson's operation. Because Wilkerson had an operation at this point. He was holding regular meetings and collecting dues for, for the Citizens Investigative Committee, which was dedicated entirely to nailing Frank Jones's pelt to the wall. And he was, it was like a pretty popular movement. He had like a lot of supporters in town.
2: I mean, yeah, you get to join your own Scooby
1: gang. And with the dues now paying his bills, he was basically ignoring the Burns agency and working for himself. (laughs) Uh, Nonetheless, Frank had a rat in this operation somewhere. And so he and Hank Horton were waiting with shotguns to chase the burglars off when they showed up at the store. Um, Actually, based on something one of the articles said, I think... I think Hank Horton shot at them, but his shotgun misfired, so they they tried to kill these guys. He'll eventually, Wilkerson will, get Frank Jones charged, but it ends up being a farce that um, burns Wilkerson's last ties with the Burns Agency and arguably contributes to the agency's end. Um, It's one of many legal struggles they're dealing with across the country at this time, uh, and the age of the Pinkerton Agency and the Burns Agency is quickly coming to a close as it becomes clear that Police need to do the professional policing.
2: You know, with rules and stuff.
1: Yeah, with rules and stuff.
2: Not like they always follow those rules, but at least there's some legal recourse.
1: That's right. So as you can imagine, after the Frank Jones-Blackie Mansfield fiasco, the state attorney general was fascinated with this case. And to him, there was one figure that stood out looking at the facts of the case, and that was Reverend George Kelly, a weird old British guy. Um Bill James I'll quote Bill James only when he everyone should read The Man from the Train and I'll gush more about that book next week. Um but I'll only quote from Bill James where I find his uh where I find him especially entertaining or uh, incisive. And uh, on Reverend Kelly there's several of these. Uh James describes Kelly as that rare and unfortunate man who was weak in every area. <laughs> And he means physically, mentally, emotionally, and morally weak. Yikes! Reverend Kelly uh, was not really a reverend; he was kind of an intern. Apparently, he was for reverence. He was attending seminary in Omaha at the time, and going around to different Presbyterian churches in the area to like spend a few days preach, learn that kind of thing. Mm. Um, in his off hours, he could apparently often be found peeping through his neighbors' windows at their wives. Ew. Until either angry husbands or his own domineering wife chased him across the yard. Oh, boy. <laughs> this guy's a mess. He is a total mess. Uh, Kelly's wife once told one of the investigators that they had, quote, never had normal sexual relations. I don't know what that means.
2: Yeah. What, what's the difference? Like, where is she drawing that line? I
1: think, I'm guessing, like, vaginal intercourse is normal sexual Oh boy, Relations. okay. Anyhow, in his... This um, guy's gross. So you don't even know yet.
2: In, peeping Tom's. Oof.
1: In his capacity as a, I don't know, church intern or apprentice, um, Reverend Kelly was at the Vallisca Church for Children's Day.
2: I don't want him there for Children's Day.
1: Uh, the sources always refer to him as Reverend Kelly because that's what he was at the time of the murders. But as I said, he wasn't really a reverend then and after the murders, but before his arrest, he will be thrown out of divinity school and denounced by all of the local Presbyterian churches. So I don't know if reverend is that accurate. Hmm. In any case, the night of the murders, he was staying a block away at the house of the minister of the local church. So why is Kelly so uh, suspicious? Why did the AG become so fascinated with him? Well, Kelly, for his part, was immediately fascinated by the Moore family's murder. Uh, I think the very next day, or shortly thereafter, he wrote his first of many letters to the local minister, explaining his background as a detective, and begging for tours of the murder house.
2: Peeking into ladies' windows doesn't make you a detective, dude. <laughs> I'm detecting! I'm detecting! Ugh. Keep your detecting in your pants.
1: Kelly would write further letters to detective agencies and even to the governor of Iowa presenting his theories on the case. Um, It seems to be kind of all he was talking about, his regular kind of thing to inflict on people he was speaking to, um, to the point that the night watchman at the Velisca Hotel once had to be called to send Reverend Kelly back to his room because he was acting his theory of the crime out so violently in the
2: lobby. Oh my God, this guy has problems.
1: Oh, for sure he does. And those problems caught up to him in December of 1913, when Reverend Kelly, now deciding he was a writer, uh, advertised for a secretary, and his ad was answered by a 16-year-old girl. Mm. Reverend Kelly's letter back to the girl explained that, of course, a secretary would sometimes have to pose nude for him, and then went into all of the particulars of where and how the posing would be done. Real Uh,
2: Albert Fish stuff. Yeah.
1: Uh, the girl apparently contacted her clergyman who contacted the police. And Kelly ended up in a Washington, D.C. mental institution.
2: Oh, boy.
1: The staff there said that he constantly discussed the Velisca murders to anyone who would listen or not listen, including sometimes saying that he had done them.
2: If he wasn't already doing creepy stuff and committing crimes like peeping and things like that i would say maybe he just had a fixation and he was very socially awkward but i think all of it together is a bit beyond the pale
1: he certainly had a fixation and he was certainly awkward um as for the alleged confession when Velisca and county cops went up to visit the asylum on that tip he um Recanted the confession, said he had nothing to do with the murder, and in fact that he had said no such thing. And Kelly was apparently a bit of a mumbler. So it's possible that he was just going like, oh, some say I did it. And some you know you know, some I just love, I want to help with the murder, but some think I did it. I did it.
2: Never do that impression again. It's so unsettling.
1: Kelly was released shortly after this incident and was still writing to authorities about his theories of the Villisca Axe murder case when in May 1917, he was charged with the murder of Lena Stillinger. Authorities figured, Yeah, authorities figured they would charge him with the other seven murders later if this first one didn't stick to avoid a double jeopardy situation. It's a dirty trick. In between uh, rounds of police beatings, Kelly allegedly confessed again to a fake cellmate this time. You know how they'll sometimes put a policeman in the cell? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, He apparently told this man that he had heard the voice of God commanding him to slay as he passed the house. So he went to the shed, got the axe, entered through the front door, killed the whole family, and sat in silence until the sunrise.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You might note that that's not totally consistent with the nature of the crime we're talking about, Bill James certainly notes that, uh, but the police did not, and they went ahead and tried this man twice. He was acquitted twice. At the first trial, um, it's interesting. It's hard to separate how much James and Wilkerson got Kelly off, because uh, Wilkerson still had an axe to grind for Frank Jones, obviously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he filled the courthouse with goons who were like shaking Kelly's hand and slapping him on the back like, hey, yeah, he's a good man. We're here in defense of Kelly, free Kelly, all this kind of stuff. Um, They were lining up at five in the morning to get the good seats in the courthouse.
2: This is all chaos.
1: Now, as to the state's case, there really wasn't much physically tying Kelly to the house because he in all likelihood wasn't there. Uh, Many of the witnesses were there to testify that Kelly hated children or was grumpy uh, around them, or that he was a creep who liked peeping on women's uh, uh, lady parts. Ultimately, the jury uh, returned a... It took them a little while, I think. One guy wanted to go not guilty by reason of insanity, but eventually um, the jury pronounced him not guilty. Of course, there was a second trial shortly after But a lot of the air had been sucked out of this story at this point and there were empty seats in the courthouse as Kelly was acquitted on the first ballot. We'll close out talking about Reverend Kelly here with one more quote from Bill James because this is uh, one of my favorite things he says about this crime. Regarding Reverend Kelly, I absolutely do not believe that he was capable of committing a crime of this nature. Not that he was not morally capable of great (laughs) depravity, perhaps, but that he was simply not capable of it in the same sense that he was not capable of playing quarterback for the Green Bay Packers.
2: So he's just saying he's basically your run-of-the-mill pervert.
1: And not a man who could enter a house, kill eight people with an ax, and get away with it.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Now, apparently, at this point, there was a level of schism in this town to almost like Hatfield-McCoy levels. Like... If you were pro-Wilkerson, you wouldn't shop at a pro-Jones store.
2: (laughs) Which you knew because you probably owned them.
1: And your children might not be allowed to play with children from pro-Jones families. That's wild. That's what Bill James says. And he says that actually this line tended to be along religious lines. um, Because Frank Jones was a Methodist. And the murdered Moors were Presbyterians, as was uh, Reverend Kelly. And so those who were on Wilkers- Wilkerson's side tended to be the Presbyterians in town, and those who were on um, Jones's side tended to be the Methodists. Hmm. Wilkerson, at some point, switched to fully living in Villisca full-time. Yeah, I mean, and that's what it seems like. He set up, in addition to all that organizing in the courtroom, he set up the Reverend Kelly Defense Fund, oh, okay. which also seems like it was kind of just his personal piggy bank. <laughs> um. He apparently had his eye set on running for county attorney, uh, but he had made. Um,
2: Did he have any law experience?
1: He was a lawyer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, he was a lawyer. That's not what he was doing right now, and he didn't have a, a law of license to practice law in Iowa. And actually, the attorney general, for reasons that might be obvious at this point, fucking hated J. N. Wilkerson. So he was <laughs> like, he like held up his petition to practice law in the state, and. Because he wasn't allowed to practice law at the time they were having the primary, he couldn't be on the ballot. But this man had become so popular in Villisca and in the surrounding area, and so famous, that he won the primary on a write-in bid. Uh,
2: Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe they were just comforted by someone looking like they still cared about this case and was trying to solve it. Again, not in the best
1: way, but... Yeah, I don't know if he's trying to solve it, though. He's trying to end it. Well, he's appearing like he's trying to solve it. Yes, he is. And and people bought in, too. People obviously bought in pretty big. Yeah, the mystery club. Now, once Wilkerson becomes county attorney, he knows he will have Frank Jones once and for all. He can pull whatever strings he needs to to get this guy behind bars or get him to pay a sizable blackmail. (laughs) I think... Wilkerson gave up on the blackmail at a certain point and was just like, well, I'm, this is my job. I live off I live off the people of Villisca, and I try to nail Frank Jones to the wall. <laughs> Wilkerson would not win his bid for county attorney, but only because of a run of bad luck. Um, earlier in the case, Wilkerson had met a guy named Warren Noel, who had owned the crime scene photos. I don't think he took them. I think they came with the camera equipment when he bought <laughs> <it>. <laughs> It was a weird time, 1912.
2: Yeah, the early 1900s, man.
1: Because the guy who took the crime scene photos was just a local like, store owner, like a pharmacist or something, who had expensive camera equipment. (laughs) And he took a couple pictures but was then shooed away from the scene. And so when I read that Warren Noel acquired the crime scene photos with his photography business, I'm assuming he bought this expensive equipment off this other store owner, opened a photography business, and the guy was like, you want these... Photos of these dead people? Okay. So, Noel became friends with Wilkerson and became one of his most ardent supporters and a member of the... um. What did we call it?
2: The Citizens Against Frank Jones or something.
1: The Citizens Defense League? Yeah. Which, of course, Noel was skimming money off the top of right away. <laughs> now, people in Wilkerson's orbit were getting... um pretty suspicious of him and demanding the money back and uh, noel seems like a guy who had a lot of different scams going on in the same stretch of time he like sold his car and then tried to get an insurance payment on it because he said it was stolen and um he did something with claiming a train claiming to have foiled a train plot to try to collect reward money he was always he always had a scam going in he also apparently had a very pretty young wife After getting in over his head in debt to a few different people, Noel took a train ride on October 31st of 1917 and never came back. While he was on this train, he mailed his wife a letter saying a band of ruffians had taken him hostage. He was ultimately found the next morning with a bullet in his head and his revolver lying beside him on a train platform in Albia, Ohio. Noel apparently had way too much like maybe suspiciously too much insurance money on his policy, mm-hmm. and his wife May Noel was uh, pretty rich, actually. Like pretty, pretty much all set after he was dead. This same May Noel was spotted walking with J. N. Wilkerson in late June of 1918.
2: The twists don't end,
1: and the two were arrested for conspiracy to commit adultery because they were seen by state agents and Wilkerson had made an enemy of basically everyone in the justice system.
2: But how is it adultery if the guy's already dead?
1: Well, because Wilkerson was married.
2: Oh, oh, oh dear. I think, yeah. Okay.
1: So literally three treasury agents or three three like state police, state agents, three state employees hid in the next room at this hotel and listened through the wall and then burst in like, you're under arrest. You're conspiring to bang. And I've never heard of this, but Bill James says that these guys breached procedure and were only able to, because these two were arrested for conspiracy to commit adultery. Mm-hmm. Bill James says it was a breach of procedure. These guys were supposed to wait until they heard the squeaking of mattress springs.
2: <laughs> well, then that's adultery. So
1: that you could catch them in <laughs> adultery.
2: But his pants were off. So he's conspiring. Yes. <laughs> Uh, they, they jumped the gun.
1: I'm not too excited. I'm not sure whether he was convicted of conspiracy to commit adultery or not. I, I imagine that's only a fine and not jail time anyway, but it was a big story and it was the end of Wilkerson's bid for county attorney and the danger he posed to Frank Jones. We're told they met once more later in Villisca in 1918. The two circled each other like angry, you know, animals, snarling animals for a moment before Frank kicked Wilkerson <laughs> like a dog. And then the two were pulled apart and moved away from each other.
2: Uh, ships passing in the night.
1: That's it. <laughs> now, what do, you think, what, what do you think happened to Wilkerson after this?
2: If I was him, I wouldn't keep living there, but he's a weirdo, so I don't know.
1: He didn't. He uh, spent most much of the rest of his life touring the country, lecturing... About? The assassination of Abraham Lincoln.
2: As you do.
1: Uh, Wilkerson developed some like c- conspiracy and cover-up theories about how the government had murdered uh, Lincoln and, and covered it up. And at some point, he purchased a mummy. As you do. Sometime in the 1930s. There, there was this old guy who had claimed on his deathbed, I'm the real John Wilkes Booth, and then died. And so this was kind of trotted out at various shows, circuses, and shows for a little while. Uh, it came into Wilkerson's possession, this mummy, and he uh, to- of the quote-unquote real John Wilkes Booth. Uh huh. And Wilkerson toured the Midwest, giving lectures on his theories on the murder and the supposed cover-up, and showing the the body.
2: What a strange person!
1: And that's what he did for the rest of his life. Okay. He became sort of a um.
2: A crackpot, a P.T. Barnum.
1: A, a P.T. Barnum is sort of mixed with a, uh, what's the, Orthon of Venus? Uh, a Damsky. Yeah, mixed with a Georgia Damski.
2: <laughs> okay. Wow. What a weird story. I, I didn't know any of this was related to Villisca. It's
1: crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Um, it goes without saying that the murder is a major part of Villisca's history, legacy, and even identity to this day the Montgomery County Historical Society says 80% of info requests they get are regarding these murders. Wow. And that's the historical society for the county that Velisca sits in. The axe was actually on display in the Velisca City Hall from 1987 until 2004. And if you think that seems like it's in slightly poor taste, you should also know that the Velisca Axe Murder House Incorporated... <laughs> gives tours of the Moore home every day but Monday, and also have overnight packages if you've got money to burn and are into ghost hunting.
2: It's the same as the Lizzie Borden house. Now, what happened with the axe? Where is it?
1: Uh, the last I heard, the plans were for it to be dis- donated to the Velisca Historical Society, but I think it's currently in the hands of a local doctor or something. It seems par
2: for the course for Velisca. Yeah, really. <laughs>
1: So uh, let's talk about the suspects, because you've got uh, Frank Jones and William Mansfield. That was the Wilkerson's favorite theory, either together or separately. Because maybe William Mansfield was a a main lone maniac. Sure, Um, but it really seems like there was never anything to this in terms of hard links. Um, Bill James draws a connection or draws a comparison between Wilkerson and the Music Man.
2: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean yeah
1: like he is a henry hill is that no
2: nope. no it's not henry that's um that's, that's good fellas
1: like he is a uh, music man coming into town and instead of taking advantage of everyone through music and fun uh he's doing it through like legal tricks and uh accusing innocent men of murder
2: mm-hmm. different vibe
1: different vibe um could
2: hugh jackman play both uh- yes <laughs>
1: Um, so, so we've talked about Frank Jones, William Mansfield, and George Kelly.
2: The bad reverend.
1: Mm, The bad reverend. Um, there are a couple of other suspects. Of course, in any crime like this, the police grab every, like, kind of trampy loner in town and, uh, uh, investigate them. So they, they talked to a couple of, uh, local, like, homeless guys whose names I won't even confuse the record with here because they had no connection to the crime.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we come to Henry Lee Moore, who has also been thrown out as a possible suspect.
2: Any relation? No. Okay. Totally
1: separate Moore family.
2: But you got Henry Lee in there, and that's <laughs> that's a bad luck right there.
1: It, uh, I mean, three namers are always bad, but Lee as the middle name is tough.
2: And Henry, I mean, you got Henry Lee Lucas. Others. Others.
1: <laughs> Henry Lee Moore was born in 1874 which puts him at about 38 years old at the time of this killing. In 1910, Moore had been living with his mother and grandmother outside of Columbia, Missouri, and working in car shops part-time along the railroad. He was described as a friendly guy, but there were some weird rumors about him, like he was rumored to enjoy hanging around morgues to hopefully get a look at the dead bodies.
2: Henry Lee Morgue.
1: Oh, that was his, (laughs) yes, that was (laughs) his stage name. Yeah. Uh, As a drag king?
0: Mm.
1: No. (laughs) He also collected newspaper clippings of famous criminal cases, which sounds like something you might do.
2: Hey, well, okay, but don't be accusatory.
1: I mean, we have a lot of life magazines about the Kennedy assassination.
2: Listen, when you find them at a tag sale, you buy them.
1: More surprisingly, because literacy was not universal at this time by any means, was very fond of letter writing and he had various female pen pals. His writing talents also extended to forgery, apparently, because he was arrested for that in 1910, and then released the following year. I tell you all that because after his release, uh, Henry started writing letters to a 16-year-old girl named Queenie Nickel, and after some time, he professed his love to Queenie. Uh, Queenie rejected Henry because uh, she said he was a loser without a home of his own, and he replied in in the following letter that soon his mother's home would be his, along with all the money she had. Mm hmm Henry then took a train to Columbia and stayed at the Central Hotel under the name L. Smith. Not suspicious, right? (laughs) Using an alibi when you go check in and not stay at your mom's house? (laughs) On December 17th, 1912, Henry snuck into his mother's house with a rusty axe. His mother, Georgia, was sitting and rubbing ointment on her joints as he crept up behind her and bludgeoned her in the neck and head with the blunt side of the axe. Mm. His 82-year-old grandmother, Mary Wilson, he killed in her sleep. On the way out of the house, Henry left the axe in a nearby ditch, hurried back to the hotel room, and cleaned himself off. But he was obviously nervous in the process, because he left a lot of blood behind on his clothes, the sheets, and some on his arms, which was still present when he talked to police the next day. Uh, take a shower dude take a shower henry on december 18th henry quote discovered the bodies and called the police
2: <laughs> still with blood all over him crusting over
1: still blood on his arms and his clothes he, Stop. he was arrested almost immediately uh, yeah uh he was sentenced to life in prison but his sentence would ultimately be commuted and he was released in 1956 uh, he was last seen living at a Salvation Army Center in St. Louis at age 82. We don't know what happened to him after that.
2: He could be around any corner.
1: I don't think so.
2: Well, maybe he's the oldest man in the world.
1: He would have to be. <laughs> and by a lot, too. Now, one of the private investigators involved in the Velisca case, a W.M. at one time sent Moore's arrest record and fingerprints to a J.H. Livingston who was a fingerprint esper- expert in Jefferson City. And the two of them together hatched a theory around a string of murders that does seem to have begun right around the time Moore was released in 1911.
2: From the first thing, the forgery. From the forgery.
1: Mm-hmm. In sept- September 17, 1911, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Henry Wayne, his wife and child, and the visiting Mrs. Burnham and her two children were all killed. Burnham's husband, who was not present, uh, was suspected in the crimes, but was ultimately released. Leaving How them
2: were they killed?
1: Oh, with an axe. The, all yeah. of these were with, with, with an axe. October 11th, uh, in October 1911, in Monmouth, Illinois, an M.E. Dawson was killed with an axe, along with his wife and daughter. Also in October 1911, in Ellsworth, Kansas, William Showman was killed with an axe, along with his wife and three children. June 1912, in Paola, Kansas, Ronald Hudson and his wife were killed, also with the blunt side of an axe. Finally, June 10th to 11th, 1912, in Vallisca, we know the Moore family and the Stillinger girls were slain with an axe. And December 17th, 1912, in Columbus, Ohio, Henry Lee Moore's mother and grandmother both killed with the blunt side of an axe.
2: I mean, he had some kind of motive to kill his mother and grandmother to get their stuff, but it's a pretty big jump from forgery to axe murderer.
1: Yes, it is.
2: So what is linking him to the other ones, aside from the way it all played out?
1: Well, although the media ran with this theory, newspapers printed it basically as fact, apparently. Mm. Uh, Even though that wasn't how the investigators were saying it. They were saying, well, maybe there's a connection here. Colorado Springs police even investigated Henry Lee Moore in connection with the Wayne Burnham killings. But there's nothing hard at all connecting him to any of those other crimes. Mm -hmm. The theory of these two investigators might be along the right track, though. Another theory bringing some of these other crimes into the fold would be proposed, um, but not until the 21st century.
2: By our friend?
1: By our friend Bill James. There was a confession in this crime in 1931... A convict named Leroy Robinson, also known as George Myers, uh, confessed to police that he had killed six people in Villisca while he was awaiting trial for burglary. Now, the police had apparently gotten a tip about Myers uh, that caused them to visit his jail cell. And it does appear the confession was, if not beaten out of him, at least sweated out of him. Um, In any case, there were eight victims in the crime, not six. Yeah. And finally that latest theory that I mentioned before. Bill James, noted baseball writer, saw in the Velisca murders the practiced hand of an experienced criminal. And he started perusing old newspapers for similar crimes in the area. And after finding the Paola killing and several of the other ones we just mentioned, Colorado Springs, he got his daughter involved as a research uh, aide and the two would ultimately write The Man from the Train, proposing In many ways, it's the most ambitious true crime book I've ever read. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It proposes a previously unknown American serial killer who they believe to be responsible for somewhere between 40 and 100 deaths.
2: Oh, my God.
1: This man moved around the United States and possibly beyond using the train lines, killing whole families with an axe, not taking anything, and disappearing into the night.
2: And we're going to talk about that next week.
1: And that is what we're going to talk about next week, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so far, what do you think? I mean, do, do any of the suspects we gave you so far feel like they fit?
2: No, none of them feel very satisfying. Um, again, the only thing that kind of perks the attention is um, the last guy. Henry Lee Moore. Yes, Henry Lee Moore.
1: Not even Reverend Kelly, because there's there's still accounts like some contemporary accounts will write it basically like he did it.
2: I think Kelly has the same problem that I have with Henry Lee Moore, is that there's a big jump from being a perv and a, and a ne'er do well to to committing multiple bloody murder.
1: Yeah. Uh. Bill, when Bill James talks about this, he actually. The way he puts it is like, we don't have any evidence that the reverend was attracted to prepubescent girls. Mm -hmm. Um, We only know that he tried to get naked pictures of a 16-year-old girl, and he tried to get views of his neighbor's wives through the windows. Right. Um, And those are potentially...
2: And people were still getting married when they were 16. I mean, not that it's okay, but I don't know if he viewed her as oh she's so young
1: no i think my yeah my point is i think these fall into the realm of normal sexual desires he just had no
2: he's just expressing them abnormally he
1: had no ability to express them in an appropriate way
2: yeah so between that and i mean there being a clear motive for henry henry lee moore killing his mom and grandmother um i mean the only thing that really sparks interest in that one is that oh it's very similar but why did he kill all these other people you know so none of them really satisfy me yet no
1: and very similar in that it was everyone in the house and with the backside of an axe mm-hmm. but we will there are many other elements of the villisca crime that aren't present in that henry lee moore crime and um those are the elements hey, what other things jump out to you as interesting about the crime scene in Villisca that you would be looking for if you were trying to establish a pattern?
2: Um, Possibly some proof of maybe the victims being watched before they're killed. Um, Sexual assault. The bacon is weird.
1: The bacon is weird.
2: Um... I mean, there's things that jump out like the lamp and the scuffs on the ceiling, but I don't know if that's something that would always happen, you know, but if you sexually assault someone after death one time, chances are you're going to do it again if you're killing other people. So yeah, those are those are kind of the main things.
1: Well, I think we will uh, we will look at a lot of common identifiers in a lot of different crimes that you've never heard of. Um, Because while the Velisca murders have kind of stayed in the public consciousness, many other similar crimes that happened around the same time and in similar areas of the country, small towns, got huge coverage at the time, but have ultimately faded uh, into the background, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: faded into history as the towns they took place in either became known for other things or ceased to exist altogether.
2: Right. Then you could still go to the Velisca Axe Murder House and... Take a tour. Take a tour. So the the history is still very much alive, and that kind of keeps it contemporary.
1: So that's... Um, we won't really have closure. I know we don't feel like we have closure on this Velisca story, and, and we won't until, you know, possibly a little bit more next week when we will get into Bill James's theories on the man who did this, who he calls the man from the train. hmm no, not mmm. Like, ugh.
2: Well, I mean, it's a cool name.
1: Yeah, he's a bad man.
2: Obviously.
3: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well...
2: A Baltimore County Circuit Court judge has ordered new DNA testing in the case of Adnan Syed, who you may know from the first season of the hugely popular Serial podcast. Yeah,
1: that's the one that invented podcasts. (laughs)
2: Well, pretty much. uh, His murder conviction for the death of ex-girlfriend Hey Min Lee was the subject of the first season, which really helped kick off the true crime podcast craze. And uh, for myself, I had first listened to podcasts way back when they first came out in 2005-ish.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I was just kidding. I was listening to the Ricky Gervais show back then.
2: I was listening to some Buffy ones, Um, but then I kind of fell off because I was still in high school and smartphones weren't a thing yet. And it was really Serial that kicked off my interest and um, got me into looking up more podcasts. Mm -hmm. So uh, for his part, Syed has been serving a life sentence in prison after his February 2000 conviction for first-degree murder, robbery, kidnapping, and false imprisonment. Syed has continuously attested to his innocence, however, and the coverage on Serial helped fuel interest in his case and possible false conviction. In 2016, Judge Martin P. Welsh vacated Sied's uh, conviction and ordered a new trial, a decision that was upheld by the Maryland's Court of Special Appeals in 2018. However, the decision was overturned by the Maryland Court of Appeals in 2019. As reported by CNN... Sied and prosecutors last week filed a joint motion for post-conviction DNA testing saying that the, since the crime occurred more than two decades ago, DNA testing has changed and improved drastically.
1: Is it common for defendants and the prosecution to co-file a motion?
2: That I don't know. I assume, I assume it's, it's not uncommon because you're filing for your own guilt, you know, for your own case.
1: No, but I mean for them to co-file with the prosecution.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the The motion went on to state, quote, Ms, Ms. Lee's clothing, shoes, and certain other evidence recovered from the scene have not been subject to DNA testing. Sayed seeks to use the most advanced DNA testing methodologies that are currently available to analyze the biological evidence collected from the scene in an effort to exculpate him. So we'll be sure to stay updated on any news in this case, and who knows, maybe we'll cover it when all is said and done. Um, I'm sure we won't do it as well as Serial, but maybe we'll have a conclusion.
1: The problem with that one is it's a podcast that broke that story, so you can't really, you know, it feels like we, all we could do is less of it. Hey, do you want to listen to that, but less of it?
2: Again, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have an ending, who knows. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you all updated.
1: Yep, and on all future making a murder developments, uh, all future um, Bo Bergdahl developments,
2: just all just just all crime. We'll try to update you
1: on
2: true crime, true true crime time. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and, t- and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it Scary, And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
1: Yes, and come join us on Patreon. Lots of hot stuff coming up there, including um, episodes on the Myth Electron and the sexy axe murder of Carla Faye Tucker.
2: I don't I don't like you describing it that way.
1: She described it that way. Ugh. It's not my fault. Well, Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison.
2: See you next Thursday.
1: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
2: This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs>